As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we have made the turn. I didn't announce it last week because I was not in my right head. But we have made the turn. Today we're going to look uh, at 7 and focus in on verses 15 through 29. Uh, But for the purpose of reading, I'm going to back up a a few verses. Um. going to back up to verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Let that hit on you for a second. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Be a fool. Why should you die before time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something is more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you grant us ears that will hear, eyes that will see. Not ears that can hear, because you have already given those. And not eyes that can see, because you have given those as well in Jesus Christ. But Lord, so much of living out your truth is not about what we are able to perceive through evidence and reason. It is about what our heart wants. And so use your word today to help our hearts to desire what you desire so that our loves would be reformed according to your word in accordance to who you have made us to be in your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Finish this sentence for me. And, and yes, that's not rhetorical. I know it's Presbyterians, but actually speak in the service. Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a life. All right, well, that's not the one I was going with. Mine is give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Don't teach a man a fit to fish and feed yourself. He's a grown man. Fishing's not that hard. That's from the infamous Ron Swanson. We call this a proverb. We, we call this a wise saying. And we know it's a proverb. We know it's a wise saying because I could say finish the sentence and you finished the sentence. I didn't start out and you guys get real, you know, excited or confused. Oh, well, we were talking about fishing in, in the sermon. Um, you knew when as soon as I said, give a man a fish, you could have said you feed him for a day. This is a saying, it's, it's known, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wise expression from what we are taught, but if this is what you think biblical wisdom is, then we need to explore this further. Because basically what this wise saying is talking about is basically, if you give someone a skill, it will help them out. But what biblical wisdom is interested in is not in providing you simply a skill. Biblical wisdom is seeking to provide you an, a, a unique insight into life that allows you to explore to the, the depths of this world that you are able to reach. But even wisdom has limits. And so part of wisdom is understanding that there are limits to wisdom. The wisdom that Solomon has been unfolding for us here in Ecclesiastes up to this point is, uh, in terms of the first half of this book, is a wisdom that is trying to get us to honestly understand the world, our neighbor, and ourselves for what we truly are right now under the sun. And here's where it is. We live in a cursed world. You live in a cursed world as one who has been cursed. And your neighbor lives in a cursed world as one who has been cursed. 
Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, back at the beginning of creation, the dominating reality of life under the sun is God's covenantal curse. And what Solomon is trying to get us to do is embrace it. Not because we like the curse, but because if we don't embrace life as cursed, we will get everything off. Curse brings with it limits. And what you and I do, and what our neighbor tends to do, is to play make-believe and to think that we can get beyond the limits. We think that through our, our efforts, we think through the government's efforts, we think through anyone's efforts, whether it be through money, whether it be through power, whether it be through relationships, whether it be through knowledge, right? We live in the scientific age, right? And ever since the Industrial Revolution, what, is, uh, what does everyone assume to be true about Western civilization? That progress is inherent to what it means to be alive in the age of reason, science, medical technology. We think that if we just harness this knowledge and harness money and harness the collective in the right way, we think that we can somehow get past the curse. We can't. And every second that you spend in terms of your time, your treasure, or your talent, giving it to some kind of scheme to move beyond the curse, what you're doing is you're missing out on how to experience the good life in a cursed world. One of the things that makes uh, Reformed theology unique is both our understanding of what we call total depravity, that the world and everyone in the world is completely and utterly tainted and twisted by sin. But what is also unique to us in the Reformed world is that we believe that though this is true, it doesn't mean that there is no longer any goodness of God in this world. Because it is His world. And He is the one who has made it. He is the one who is overseeing it. This is why providence is so important to us. Not just with regards to the doctrine of salvation, but more importantly, to what it means for us waking up in the morning and living life in a cursed world. We live life in a cursed world, but we live that life as those who understand there is something that is bigger and beyond the curse. There is a good, loving, gracious God who has a plan. As we talked about in my Sunday school class this morning, why did God originally create? He wanted relationship. But man fell. And what did that do to what God wanted? It didn't change it. So that after the fall, God still wants relationship. And so he is 
going about the process of him achieving his heart's desire. And his heart's desire is to have a people whom he has made, whom he has redeemed, who perfectly embody and reflect his own righteousness and his own um, um, love and grace and mercy. All the beauties, all the goodness, all the truth about who he is, he is turning us into that. And he's doing that because that's what he wants. That's what he desires. Even when we didn't, he still did. And so he is manifesting himself in this world. He is revealing himself in this world so that he can achieve what his heart wants. Until we reach that final consummation of those things, you and I as God's people are going to know him in the midst of curse. That brings limitations. And the wisdom that Solomon is offering is the wisdom that comes through the embracing of the limits. Embrace the fact that you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about that. That seems weird and harsh to us, and yet, when you look at it through the biblical lens, that becomes freedom and it becomes liberty. Because you become freed up from chasing after the hevel. You become freed up from chasing after the vanity. You become freed up from chasing after the empty uh, airiness of life that is passing away. It frees you up from investing in something that doesn't last so that you can invest in what does. And that means living within the limits that God is revealing to us within this world. You and I cannot do anything to change the curse. That's the first half of the book. The curse is real. And the curse is here because God was faithful to do what he said he would do if Adam and Eve were faithless to do what they were offered. So we are in this fix because of ourselves. But God is doing something about the curse. And what the Old Testament is trying to lead us up to eventually when you get into the New Testament, is that what God will do to finally and totally and completely deal with the curse. And that is in sending his son, Jesus Christ, who will deal with the curse by becoming a curse for us when he is hung on the tree. So that even God, as he is working uh, for us and as he is overcoming the curse, he overcomes it by first submitting himself to it. And the, the wisdom that is displayed in that is not what you and I would typically consider wisdom. That is what we called last week the wisdom of the cross. A wisdom that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is a stumbling block. A, a wisdom that is a hindrance. Uh, 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 it is a wisdom that, that is scandalous 
Because that's not what the world considers wise. Victory doesn't come through apparent defeat. Victory comes through strength and might and change and and working one's will to get others to either bend to it or to agree to it in order so that the good life can be manifest despite the curse. But God's wisdom is to deal with the curse by first experiencing the curse for us and then triumphing over that curse in resurrection life. And as we said from the very first sermon, which is why I preached it specifically on Easter, is that for you and me who live past Ecclesiastes, who live past the coming of Christ, who live past the resurrection of Christ. For us, it is no longer the case that there is nothing new under the sun. There is, because a new sun has risen in the first day of the new creation when Jesus burst forth from his grave. So resurrection is a reality for us. New life is a reality for us. The new creation has begun in Jesus Christ. A new humanity in Christ now exists within this world. And there is a power that comes from the Holy Spirit, which is a heavenly reality that invades our hearts, that fuels us with the heavenly in order to bear witness to the heavenly, even right here, right now. We live to be manifestations that there is something beyond the sun. So the second half of the book for us is how do we do that? See, for Solomon, it was in light of the realities that I've seen and reality of the hope that I know is coming at some point. Here's how you live in a cursed world. For us, it is given the fact that, yes, the world is cursed and we can't change that, but God has begun a new world in Jesus Christ and we are members of that world still living in a cursed world. It means that we now know how, we, we can know how to live in this cursed world as those who still experience curse and yet who also have already experienced what it means to be made new in Jesus Christ. Now, what I have done up to this point in this sermon series is downplay the newness and the resurrection because I think that it's too easy for us as Christians at time to rely on that and then miss what is actually in Ecclesiastes for the wisdom that is not just the typology that will lead to Christ, but for the wisdom that was lived out for Solomon. Ecclesiastes was wise for Solomon to live in his day, even before Jesus Christ had come, even before death, even before resurrection. And what I've tried to do is focus us in on how do we learn from the wisdom that Solomon is offering, which is a wisdom that is grounded in embracing limits. Okay? We can't just, because of our hope in Christ, think that what that means for us now is that we are beyond the curse. And that therefore, the only wisdom that we need is something to help us conquer the curse. 
Beloved, the curse is real and the curse will be here until Jesus Christ returns in his fullness. And there is a wisdom for us to embrace the limits that come from that reality. The wisdom that we looked at last week was the wisdom of the cross as it was put forward in these two typological truth statements of of Solomon that prosperity is not always good and adversity is not always bad. See, that's a wisdom of the cross. The cross was not good. The cross was evil men working out their evil schemes and putting to death one who was righteous. That was not good. And yet God used what appeared to be only evil. He used that for good. As his death on the cross became the means for our curse to be dealt with. And then in his resurrection for us to be moved uh, into this newness of life. The cross is one of those things where it looks like it's only bad and yet... It is not only bad, but we also don't want to be silly in the way that we approach the cross and say that it was only good. No, it wasn't. It was extremely evil. It was the most evil act that we have seen in history. And yet it was also the most powerful act of truth and grace and goodness for the Lord to Turn what was meant for evil into good. The cross, Jesus tells us, is our paradigm for understanding not only the gospel of what brings us new life in Jesus Christ, but the cross is the wisdom by which we live out that gospel as we wait for the finality of the curse to be brought to an end. Prosperity is not always good. Adversity is not always bad. Prosperity tempts you away from the Lord. Adversity can also tempt you away from the Lord. Prosperity can be a wonderful blessing when prosperity becomes a means through which you pursue the Lord even more. Adversity can be a blessing when through the adversity it leads you to pursue the Lord even more. See, both of them can have the same effects, both good and bad. What's important for us as Americans to understand is that prosperity is not always good. Adversity is not always bad. Adversity is often the crucible in which your character is formed, where the roots of your faith, the roots of your character will be deepened and they will be sunk deeper into the gospel of the soil of who you are in Jesus Christ, which will lead to a greater fruit of the Spirit, of the Spirit being experienced within you. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of the roots going deep. And it is adversity that will send those roots deep. This is what biblical wisdom is about. It is about embracing a wisdom that has come from above, which is why we were going to use the James 3 text. 
the wisdom that comes from above, which is contrary to the wisdom that comes from below. The wisdom from above brings with it peace. It brings with it the fruit of the heavenly places. The wisdom from below brings with it the fruits of the earthly places. It brings discord. It brings fighting. It brings self-centeredness and selfishness. The wisdom of the world will say prosperity is always good, so pursue it no matter what. Adversity is always bad, so keep away from it no matter what. And the only way to accomplish that is to hurt the people around you. That's the reality. That's what the Bible tells us. If you try to live outside of the limits, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your neighbor. That's the reality. The wisdom of the cross says that we can entrust ourselves to God even in the midst of pain and difficulty, even as Christ entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And what was the result? Even though it seemed foolish for the God of the universe to allow himself to be captured by wicked men, even though it seemed foolish for the God of the universe to endure his own curse uh, for something he himself was faithful in. Even though this seemed foolish at the time, this was God's wisdom. The wisdom here in Solomon for us is that prosperity is not always good, adversity is, all, is not always bad. And wisdom, though it is absolutely essential to help us experience the goodness that can still be experienced in this life, even wisdom has limits. Our text talks about this in, in terms of the way that wisdom can't provide an answer for everything. How, how does it make sense in God's world for a righteous man to die or to be hurt because he's righteous and for a wicked man to experience blessing because of his wickedness? That makes no sense. But that's the reality of a cursed world. And if you try to fight that, if you try to disagree with it, if you decide, well, I don't accept that as true, what will happen is you will tend to end up in two particular responses. What Solomon tells us, one, is it will tempt you towards perfectionism. It will tempt you to, to try to, to control your environment and yourself in such a way that, that you create these really high standards for everyone. And if you can get everyone to live according to those things, well, then good people will get blessing instead of good people getting cursing. Solomon tells us, doesn't work. The other extreme is to, to just give up and pursue licentiousness. Well, if the wicked are the ones who get blessing, <laughs> let's be wicked. What does Solomon say to that? It's worse. It'll cause you to die early. Then you really miss out on even the little bit of good you may have experienced with a longer life. It actually encompasses the very opposite of what you think. Perfectionism is not the response. Licentiousness is not the response. Both of those will just lead to more hurt, 
more harm. What both of those do is manifest a, the curse in relationships in such a way that if you overhear that someone has made a negative comment about you, what do you do? Well, you judge them with a double standard. I myself have never said anything negative about anyone. How dare that person say something negative about me? Right? That's where perfectionism takes you. And rather than dealing with that brother or sister through a judgment of charity, what do you do? You condemn them. How dare they? Now, I've done it too, but they didn't hear it, so. What do you call that? That's licentiousness. See, sometimes we can practice both a perfectionism and a licentiousness in the same moment. It's perfection for them, it's licentious for me. You see? And we do this, right? We're Southerners. We're church members. Double standards. It should have been in the shorter catechism. You would think that it is. All I have to do is look into my own heart. I love to hold you to standards that I myself don't keep. And I know you do it with me. Some of it I hear. Some of it I don't. Brothers and sisters, we need to be real about this. This is part of the embracing of the limitations. If we try to act like, well, no, the curse isn't really still around like that for us because we're in Christ, then you're foolish, Solomon says. What he says is you are not going to get rid of the curse within your neighbor or within yourself or within the church until Christ comes back. And so we have to deal with one another in light of not only the fact that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ, but also that we still have remnants of the curse that are at work within us. Because the folly that, we bring, that, that exists within our relationships is a folly that we bring to the relationships. It is not a folly that is created by the other person in the relationship. Perfectionism doesn't provide an answer. Licentiousness is, is worse we have to expect and embrace the limitations. And so what he tells us is we want to avoid frustration because frustration leads to desperation. Frustration will, will lead you to try to do something about the curse that you can't do. Or it will lead you to try to make someone else do something about the curse that they can't do. And he tells us that this is the case, not only in our personal relationships, he says it also has to do with our relationship to the government. Wisdom lived out by the person following God is, he says, 10 times greater than anything that a government can accomplish. We have to expect limitations. We can't expect perfection. We're not always going to get our way. There is a beautiful, well, not beautiful, there is a stark example of this happening to Christians back at the beginning of this year. There was a certain day in Washington, D.C., 
where you saw the overflow of frustration because things weren't going the way that they expected. And there were many there that were part of Christian movements who believed that there was a prophecy that a certain candidate was supposed to win. And when that candidate didn't win, it had to be cheating because we had a prophecy. What happened? Their worldviews got rocked because they had foolishly invested themselves in a human prophecy that did not come from God. It was a prophecy that was the overflow of the desires of the hearts of those who made the prophecy. They wanted a certain candidate to win. Therefore, because they are the ones following God, and because following God always must lead to blessing, then fill in the blank. Do you see what's happened there? That's exactly what Solomon is talking about. They, had, they, they were rejecting the limitations of the curse and the way that that will play itself out in this life. And they thought that they could overcome the curse. And they thought that there was even a promise from God that he was going to overcome that curse. But that's what Solomon describes here. They were fools. And what happened was they got trapped by the desires of their own idolatrous hearts. The way Solomon puts it here in the text, <laughs> this is the favorite part of the sermon, um, is by describing uh, how bad things can get when, uh, or how bitter, something that's more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He goes on to say, uh, adding to another, uh, that there is a scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, he is not here saying that the problem in his life was women. He is also not saying the problem in this life is women. Okay? So if that's what you think, you're wrong. That is not what Solomon is saying. What Solomon is doing is he is uh, using an Old Testament device called personification where he is taking folly and, and, using, and, and making it personified, acting like folly is a person. In the Hebrew, the word that is used for folly here is sikleth. And in the Hebrew, sikleth is a, is a word that's in the feminine. If you've never studied foreign languages, then don't worry about any of this. If you have studied foreign languages, then you know that unlike English, most other uh, languages, they have words that are either in the masculine, the feminine, or the neuter. Okay? And Hebrew has masculine and feminine and neuter. It is not because the words themselves are attached to a gender uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of a person. It's just a way that they categorize um, their nouns. And so what happens is pronouns have to correspond to their nouns in person, number, and gender. All right, so end of the language lesson. Sikleth is a feminine word, not because it's 
feminine as a, as a gender. It's just part of the classification of feminine nouns. And so he personifies folly as a woman. By the way, the word for, for wisdom here in, Sol, uh, in all of Solomon's writings is chakma. Chakma is also in the feminine. So you will find, for example, in the book of Proverbs that wisdom is also personified as a woman. So what is going on here is he is, he is taking this idea of folly and he, he is um, describing it in such a way that we can understand what happens when your heart gets trapped by foolishness or trapped by folly. For Solomon, he himself was one who asked God for wisdom. God offered him power, offered him money, offered him wisdom. What do you want? He asked for wisdom. But he didn't exercise that wisdom very well through the middle part of the reign of his kingdom. And his heart, we are told, was turned towards women. And as he married more and more women, as he took more and more concubines, the result for him was that he was introducing into his household not only women, he was introducing foreign women, and the foreign women he was introducing into his household brought their foreign religions with them. And what did Solomon do? Did he remain faithful? No. He didn't remain faithful in terms of the Bible saying one man, one woman. So why would he be faithful in being true to God? And that's the issue here. Solomon is recognizing that when he allowed the influence of foreign gods and foreign religions to come into his household and into his life, he ended up leaving God behind. It's not because of the women. It's not even because of their gods. It's because of his heart. His heart still had the curse at work within it. And his heart in that curse chased after the folly that is promised by foreign gods. This is why we did end up reading from James 4. Because the problem for Solomon was not that these other people were making him sin. The problem for Solomon was that his heart had left God behind. And as a result, he was living for himself. He was living for his selfish pleasures. He was living for a self-centered life. And where that left, where that took him, was that when he didn't get what he wanted or thought he should have, which we read about back in chapters 1 and 2, when he didn't get those things, he chased after them in his own strength. He chased after idols. And the result is what James calls spiritual adultery. Now, what's the big picture here? You and I, because the curse still works within us, even when we are living wisely and living according to the wisdom of God, wisdom has limits, and you and I will still be negatively affected by that curse, and you and I still have a natural desire for the foolishness of what folly offers us. And we will chase after it. And when we do, it will catch us. And it will hold us. 
unless we come to our senses and by God's grace repent. God tells us in James 4 that when we are living according to the wisdom of the world, that's where it takes us. But even there, we find more grace. And did you hear that line? Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Now, beloved, what that means very simply is this. You and I, right now, today, are as close to God as we have chosen to be. I'm going to say that again. You and I are as close to God right now as you and I have chosen to be. Because God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. To draw near to God is the way in which we escape the temptations of the traps. It is the way that we escape the, the, the power of the nets. Wisdom has limits. And that is because you and I are limited by the curse. See, it's not even wisdom's fault. It's ours. And so praise be to God that we are told, told that in our effectual calling, God has done more than simply attempted to enlighten our minds. He has also renewed our wills. So that in Christ we have a new heart and in Christ there is a compulsion within us to pursue the good even as the curse is at work and we still also at times will pursue the bad. When we love folly we will chase it down and we will stay with it no matter the consequences because people who live under the power of the curse fit together with foolish ideas and living like hands fit in gloves. The point of what Solomon is saying here is not men are, are good. Well, at least one out of a thousand is good, and all women are bad. What he's saying is there are none who are righteous. No, not one. God, he says, God made Adam. It's a generic Old Testament term that means mankind. God made mankind. They sought out many schemes. God made us in his image, male and female. He made us upright. But we chose schemes, men and women together at the beginning, men and women together today. We continue to chase after the schemes that come from the curse rather than entrusting ourselves to the wisdom that comes from God and that is because we have mistakenly thought that prosperity brings is always good and that adversity is something always to be avoided and that wisdom itself, if we just learn the right things, we can overcome the problems of a cursed world. The reality is you can teach someone a skill like fishing, but that does not mean that they have the wisdom to fish well. Anyone, yes, can figure out how to put a hook on a line and how to put something on that hook and throw it in some water. But as the wise fisherman 
who knows what to put on the hook depending on what season of year it is. Who knows what to put on the hook depending on which season it is and how, uh, what the temperature of the water is. And the differences between fresh water that is still and moving and salt water and brackish water and all these other things. Learning to fish is not simply about putting something on a hook to catch something. There is a whole wealth and depth of knowledge that is only learned through time, through experience, by taking the, the chance of learning, taking the chance of being wrong, taking the chance of being right, and keeping track. When I did things this way, was it good or was it bad? All right, well, then I'm going to learn from that. That's the biblical wisdom. And the biblical wisdom that we have in Jesus Christ is the wisdom of taking up our cross. So that the new life of Jesus Christ can continue to be at work, shaping us according to the image of our Savior. And that we can live humble lives who realize that we don't know everything. I'm going to say that again. You don't know everything. And I certainly don't know everything. We have to stop living as if we do. And embrace the humility that comes from simply trusting Jesus. As we just sing about moments ago, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't bring blessing, even when the only thing that will result is us bearing witness that there is something beyond the sun. We have a world in which is cursed, but we can still enjoy the good. We are called to embody the good, and we are called to extend the good. But we do so leaving the results up to the one who is deeper than the reality in which we exist because he did truly make it, he is overseeing it, and he is bringing it to his heart's desired end. And that is to have a new world with a new people who live in the perfected fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to humble ourselves, especially when it comes to what we think we know, what we think should be going on in this world, when we think what should be experienced in our own lives, when we think all these different shoulds, Lord, shoulds that have not been revealed in Scripture, but shoulds that are really just simply the desires of our own hearts. Help us to repent of this and help us to be humbled in the reality that we don't know everything. Help us to be humbled by the cross in realizing that even in a world uh, that is cursed by sin, because of the lordship of Jesus Christ, your will is still being done even if it doesn't look like it. Free us from the, the, the temptation and the trap of thinking the good life is experienced in this world through control, through perfectionism, or, or by just letting go altogether and not caring. Help us instead, Lord, to trust you, to actively engage our faith at every step, with every breath, 
in every thought to the depths of the intentions of our hearts so that we would indeed trust you and follow you and experience you here now as an anticipation of the experience we will have with you in the heavenly places and use this witness bearing to whatever ends you decide to use it to, whether that be drawing more people to your son, whether that be leading to the transformation of the area around here in East Paulding and West Cobb, or whether that means further being rejected and marginalized and made fun of. Whatever it is, Lord, may we be faithful in the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ, not to return ugly words for ugly words, but instead to bless when we are cursed. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.